this week, we're going to think about the subject of beauty. And that part of the way we believe what is true is because it's beautiful to us. Because we look at it and emotionally, it satisfies us. It would actually be very difficult to go through life with a purely utilitarian view of life, functional view of life, that looks at things and says, fine, it works, that's all that matters. We crave something more than that. We crave what is beautiful. So let me ask you this question. What is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen? Or the most beautiful thing you've ever experienced? I wonder what sort of things come into your mind as I asked you that question. What is it that is beautiful to you? Now listen, let me um, make clear. I want to draw a distinction, and this may be a slightly false distinction, so bear with me. I hope it will make sense why I want to do this. I want to make a distinction between what is beautiful and what is pretty. There's a difference between beauty and prettiness. By which I mean, prettiness is something which is superficial, external, but beauty drives us deeper. I think we tend to use prettiness, things that are pretty, to distract us from reality, whereas beauty drives us deeper into reality. And therefore, as we talk about beauty this afternoon, we are talking about something that is real. Those moments when we sense a connection inside of us, an emotional connection, a response that says, yes, that's true. And you can normally tell you've had one of those experiences because you want to tell other people about it. Maybe you've climbed a mountain, you're standing on the top of a mountain and you're looking out over this incredible scenery. It's very difficult to do that on your own without wanting to kind of phone someone or say to someone, I just it's amazing. That's why we love taking photos, right? And then we subject our friends to endless photos. You know, when your friends have been on a trip abroad and they've been to this fabulous place and they've had this wonderful time and they've seen these beautiful things, they say, I want to show you my photos. You know, great. It's bad enough you went. Now I've got to look at all the things you've looked at. (laughs) But we can't help it. Beauty is something that kind of captures hold of us, that we want to tell others. We want to share it. We want to say to people, look at this. Can't you see this is beautiful? What you have in your hands on this bit of paper are some words from a man called John. And John wrote an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. He was there. He saw it for himself. And this afternoon, as we look at these words, it's as if John, through the centuries, is saying to us, I want to show you the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I want to show you something. I'm so excited about it, and it's so gripped me, I can see that this is real beauty. This is true beauty. This is beauty that satisfies, and I want you to see it. I'm going to read it for you now. But I warn you, as I read these words, they're not pretty. And in fact, you may first say, that doesn't sound beautiful. 
But I hope as we work through it this afternoon, you will come to understand why John would be so keen for you to understand what he saw. So let's read these words. When we read them, we need to try and picture what's happening. This is Good Friday. This is the day when Jesus has been falsely accused, arrested, lied about, beaten, and nailed to a cross. Now he's hanging up on the cross. And I'm going to try and make a case this afternoon to say that that is the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen. Let me read what what happened. Listen to John's account. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Did you hear John's plea in the middle of that? I saw it. The man who gives testimony, he's talking about himself. I was there. I saw the spear go into his side. I saw the water and blood. And I I just have to tell you. Now, at this point, we may be saying this is just slightly weird. This sounds like the absolute opposite of beauty. This sounds horrific and barbaric and nasty. How could we possibly say this is beautiful? Right, we need to back up a little bit. So let's back up and we're going to take a run up at this account and see why John would be so excited and so passionate that you could see what he saw. And I want to... I want to run right back a little bit to take this idea of beauty and to think of it a little more. Imagine you go to an art gallery and there's a a stunning painting, a beautiful painting. And there it is and it's wonderful and it takes you, captivates you. It's not pretty, you know, pretty things you look at and go, that's pretty. And on you go, a beautiful thing you stand and you have that moment of awe. You experienced awe recently? That's what we need. Not a light, superficial, frothy thing, but a a weighty thing. An awe that says, wow. So there you are, you see this beautiful painting. And then at the bottom you notice a name. It's signed by the person who painted it. And you take out a marker pen and you just scribble it out. You scribble 
scratch that out. And then you get out an axe and you chop that bit of the painting off. You chuck it away. And then you stand back again and go, what a painting. That would be weird, right? Don't do that. That would be really bad. Because the painting is the work of a painter. The creation is the work of a creator. And as you see the beauty of the painting, it drives you, the deeper reality is to drive you to understand the mind of the creator. That person who painted it is showing something of who they are. They're putting themselves on display to you. They're showing what they think of the world, how they feel about the world. Therefore, the painting drives you to the painter. And over and over again in the Bible, the creation, the beauty of creation drives you to the creator. The painter drives you to, the painting drives you to the painter. Behind this beautiful world, when you see a sunset, who painted the sunset in the sky? When you see the stars, when you see the waterfall, when you hear the beauty, when you see all of it, who made it? The Bible says that behind the beautiful creator, creation stands the beautiful creator God. God is the source of beauty. He is the beautiful one. And for us to try and scribble God out, for us to try and hack God out and to enjoy the creation without him, that is not just silly, it's shocking for us to do that. And the reason that we're so compelled by beauty is because we're made by the same creator. And so his beauty is wired into us. And therefore we see beauty and we love beauty because we're made by the God who's beautiful. And however much we may not believe in God or believe in God or whatever, we can't get away from the fact that we still love beauty. And what if the reason you love beauty is because there's a beautiful God? And so there's a man in the Old Testament who lived way before Jesus. Look what he said. This was his life's ambition. No, go back. One thing I ask of the Lord... This only do I seek. Right, if that was, don't read anymore. Stop, stop. One thing, I, if you could have one thing you asked of the Lord, one thing that you would seek. I just want this one thing. Look what this guy says. You've read it anyway. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Here's someone who really gets it. Here's someone who says, the one thing I want is to gaze on the beauty of God. That's what you do when you see beauty. You gaze at it. If you climb a mountain, you spend 30 seconds at the top, and then climb down again, that's, nah, what are you doing? You get to the top, and you stand, and you gaze, and you take it in, and you enjoy. That's what you do with beauty. And this man says, I don't just want to gaze at the beauty in the world. I want to gaze beyond that to the beautiful God who made it all. And can I say that he and he alone will satisfy. He alone is the beautiful one. And the Bible word for this idea of beauty 
is very closely uh, uh, um, tied to the idea of glory, God's glory. The beauty of God is the glory of God. The glory of God is God on display, God shining out. This is what God's, okay, some people think that God's hiding somewhere. You know, like, we've all got to go and search for God. Sometimes you hear people going, I'm going on a search for God. Well, he's not hiding. In fact, he's made himself known. He's put his glory on display all over the place. His beauty shines out all over. He is the beautiful one whose glory is on display. And the glory of God is when you see his beauty. So here's a guy who says, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Right. Hold that in your heads. Glory. Now come back to John. Remember John? John starts his book in chapter 1. I know you haven't got chapter 1. You have to take my word for it, but you can check later. John starts his book by saying, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. So John says, I've seen it with my own eyes. That's how he starts his book. I've seen the glory of God on display. So all the way through John's gospel, you're saying, well, where's the glory? Where's the glory? Where's the glory? First miracle Jesus does is he changes water into wine. And John writes, he thus revealed his glory. He showed his beauty as he changed water into wine. He showed what he was like, but it was only a mini one, right? It wasn't a big display. It was, it was like a mini little glimpse of glory. And then he does more miracles and more miracles. But all the way through John, it says, but his hour's not yet come. The time's not yet come. There's something coming. There's a moment coming. There's a moment coming. And then suddenly you get to the moment when Jesus dies. And in John chapter 12, Jesus says, it's now. Now I'm about to show the true glory, the true beauty of God. And he goes to a cross to die. This afternoon, if we're going to understand what John understood, we have to see the beauty of the cross of Jesus. And if we don't think the cross is beautiful, we've not understood what's going on. So now we're going to take these words with all of that stuff in our heads, and I want to work, just walk us through these words, and I want to show you the beauty that's here. Not the prettiness but the beauty, that we may be left gazing in awe at what God has done. So we're going to look at this one act, um, and we're going to see three ways this one act shows the beauty of God. Firstly, I want you to see that it was intentional. Jesus died on the cross intentionally. It's a beautiful act because it was intentional. Look with me again at the first paragraph. Very interesting phrase. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. What does that tell you about what Jesus was doing as he died on the cross? Can you see that Jesus wasn't some helpless victim, and everything was happening around him, and there was nothing he could do? Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew what was happening. He knew what had to happen. He knew that there was a plan. And he knew 
that he was fulfilling that plan. I think that makes the cross spectacularly beautiful. That Jesus chose to die. He willingly went to a cross to die. For an act to be truly beautiful, it does need to be freely chosen. If we were to go to, um, if we were to go to SeaWorld and see one of the killer whales, the orcas, do their display, where they leap out of the water and they leap to great heights and they smash down onto the water. We might watch that killer whale jump and we might think to ourselves, wow, that's impressive. That's pretty. But it's not beautiful, is it? It's not beautiful. I tell you what would be beautiful. To see that same killer whale in the middle of the ocean leaping out of the water for joy. Do you see that it's the same act, right? It's the same, but one is forced and one is free. Here is Jesus. If Jesus was forced to go to a cross and die, if Jesus was a poor little victim, it's not beautiful. But Jesus was not forced. He was free. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was fulfilling. And you can read through John's gospel. The whole thing is under his control. He's orchestrating everything. That means we're not to see Jesus as some poor little person who ends up having a poor little sad time because no one likes him. I remember watching the, a film of the life of Jesus in RE. It's GCSE. It was a long time ago. Surprising they even had films, but there was. And in my class was a girl called Aisha. Maybe she'll listen to this recording one day. <laughs> um, and we watched this film, and at the end, she was in floods and floods of tears. She said, how could they do that to him? She was so sad for him. Now, in one sense, she's right. But in another sense, she's profoundly wrong. Because Jesus knew what he was doing. And Jesus knew that this was the plan. And that's why you get this language of fulfilled. Why did Jesus say, I'm thirsty? Well, because God has this massive plan. And he's been talking about this plan. There's this beautiful plan from the beginning to the end. The plan to, to put this world right. It's a beautiful plan and God has been revealing his plan and in all sorts of different places and in different ways. And in one place in, in, in the plan, it talks about the one who's going to suffer will be thirsty. And Jesus knows what he's doing. And so on the cross, he goes, that's me. I'm thirsty. And so they give him drink. Bitter drink. But Jesus intentionally went to the cross and that makes him not a victim but a hero. When someone makes the choice to run into a burning building to save someone from death, they're not a victim, they're a hero. And we celebrate them for their magnificent heroism. It's a beautiful act. And Jesus intentionally goes to a cross to die. 
But you may say that's still slightly weird. Great, he intentionally went to die because it's part of the plan of God. That's weird. Okay, here's the second thing. The second thing is that this act is a beautiful act because it's a finished act. He did everything. So look at verse 30 with me. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, first of all, you might kind of, might be a cry of despair, right? It's finished. It's all over. This plan, it's all gone wrong. I'm dead on a cross. It's all finished. Everything's broken. This is not a cry of despair. This is a cry of victory. This is the one who says, it is finished. I have done what I came to do. There's something very beautiful about a finished work. You get a little taste of this when you decide to make a matchstick Eiffel Tower. Don't you? We've all done that, haven't we? You know, you get your matches and you start to glue them together. And when, then when you're 45, ah, oh, that's why you're not there yet. You're probably halfway through, I imagine. Keep going. Because when you put your last matchstick on your Eiffel Tower, it's a beautiful feeling. As you step back, you go, it's finished. It's done. That's what Jesus is saying here. Just slightly less trivial. Jesus is saying, it's finished. Okay, so what? What is finished? Okay, well, remember this great big plan, this plan of God, this beautiful plan of God. The plan of God to deal with the problem. You remember what I said at the start? You remember I said about the painter and the painting? Remember what I said about how humanity has this habit of cutting God out, of scribbling out his name, of hacking off the corner, of pushing him away, and enjoying the creation but ignoring the creator? Remember that? That's screwed up our world. That's broken everything. God is rightly angry at the way that we've treated him, and yet he's also a God of love, and so he sends his son to take away sin, to deal with sin, to deal with our wrong behavior. Jesus came to do that. And then as he dies on the cross, he said, it's finished. The death finishes the work. And I want to say that because Jesus finished it, it's beautiful. And this is, I I just want us to feel this a little bit. Because I think one of the really frustrating things about living in this world is that so many things aren't finished. There's always more, isn't there? It's so frustrating. In your career, there's always more. In your work, there's always more that you could do. You know, the stuff that you have, there's always more. You're never done. It's never finished. You never get to that point of being able to say, ah, it's finished. And many people feel that way with God. Many people feel like, I'm trying to obey God. I'm trying, but there's always more. I I never get there. I never get there. I never get there. And then Jesus yells out these words to the world. It's finished. It's done. There is beauty here. The work of Jesus on the cross was intentional and it's finished. 
And thirdly, it's costly. Look at this next bit. Now it's the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. What's all this about? Why are we suddenly being told about bodies and, and legs being broken? Well, the emphasis is so that we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave everything he had. He was dead. And when they come to Jesus, you see, his, his, when, when, you're, when they were crucified, you would use your legs to push up so that you could breathe. Okay? That's, that's how you stayed alive on the cross. When you're slumped down, you can't breathe and you would suffocate. So you'd push up with your legs in order to breathe. And people would stay alive for several days in order to speed up death if you break the legs so you can no longer push up and you die much more quickly. That's why they said, let's break their legs. But they don't break Jesus' legs. And instead they come with this spear and they pierce his side and a flow of blood and water comes out. I'm not much of a medic, but my understanding is that that is a sign that he was truly dead. When blood and water separate and flow out, life is gone. The emphasis John is making is that Jesus is really dead. Because this act on the cross, the beautiful act was costly. It cost him everything. It wasn't like he gave most. He gave everything. But there's a hint here of something even more beautiful in this cost. And that's that John says that it was really important that his bones weren't broken. Did you notice that? It really mattered that Jesus didn't have any of his bones broken. Why? Well, because John wants you to see that the cost Jesus paid was for you. You may say, how does Jesus not having bones broken prove that it was for me? Okay. There's another place in the Bible where there's something that is not allowed to have its bones broken. Back in the Old Testament, God gave his people a special sacrifice called the Passover. And it says this. They're to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any of it till morning. Sound familiar? We must not leave the bodies. We don't want the bodies left on the cross till morning. Yeah? And they must not break any of its bones. So Jesus is being identified with this lamb. Don't break the bones of the sacrificed lamb. Don't break the bones of Jesus. Jesus is being associated with the lamb. Well, what's the point of the lamb? Well, the point of the lamb is that he dies as a substitute for you. The cost that the lamb pays, the death of the lamb pays for you. That was how the sacrifices worked in the Old Testament. Remember the painting and the painter. I deserve to die because I have ripped God's name out and ignored him and just worshipped creation. I deserve God's punishment. But God made a way because he loves people and 
He wants a way to save. He made a way. He said you can have a substitute who pays the death price for you. He pays the debt. The lamb pays so that you go free. Don't break any of its bones because it's a sacrifice. But of course the issue is that a lamb can't truly take away my sin. A lamb can't truly pay for sin. The lamb was always pointing forward to another, a better sacrifice. A lamb of God who truly could take away sin. And I owe a debt to God, a debt that I can't pay, a debt that requires and demands my death. And Jesus said, I'll pay that debt for you. I'll pay it. And perhaps for some of you, this is very new. So let me spell this out as clearly as I can. If you've never heard this before, please listen to this carefully. This is what I'm telling you. John wrote the Gospel of John because he wants you to know that when Jesus died, it was for you. It's because you have done wrong. You deserve God's punishment, but God loves you so much he gave his son to die for you. It was for you. That's why John wrote his Gospel, so that you could believe it. So that you could know that Jesus gave everything to pay your debt And remember, it's finished. There's nothing more to do. And remember, it's intentional. He did it because he chose to do it for you. And this afternoon, all he asks you to do, all he calls you to do is to believe. John's written it down so that you may believe. That is by saying, I I admit, I admit what I've done. I admit that I've ignored God and pursued creation, just like we were hearing from Esther. I've gone after other stuff and ignored the beautiful God who made me. I'm sorry. Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Believe. And if this is very new to you, then you could believe today. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what Christians believe. Christians don't believe that there's more and more and more rules to do. We believe that there's a finished work that's already been done and he's done it for you. And let me just say to those of us who do know this stuff, those of us who say, I, I, yes, I know this. John, if you, is this really all you've got to say this afternoon? We've heard this many times before. Let me say to you, will you gaze at this? Will you come and stand before the cross of Jesus and gaze at his beauty? Will you confess that actually you don't find the cross of Jesus as beautiful as many other things in the world? And this afternoon, Jesus is calling you back. What is it that's captivated you? What is it you're chasing after? Because here, here is the one who has put the glory of God on display. It's here as Jesus dies on the cross that we see the love of God as Jesus intentionally and completely and in the most costly way possible does what he needs to save you. We need to gaze on this. We need to stand in awe of this. We need to, this to be beautiful to us. And if you're sitting here and you say, I don't find it beautiful, it doesn't really bother me. Here's what I suggest you do. 
I, ju- I suggest you say to God, I do not find the cross beautiful. And I'm sorry. And please would you change my heart and help me to see. It's not okay to go through the Christian life and to not be moved by the cross of Jesus. It's not okay. It's not okay to go through the Christian life and to sort of know it but not be gripped by it. It's not okay. But that doesn't mean we try and generate some fake emotion. It means that we ask God to show us more of Christ. And I need that this afternoon. I need to see Jesus more. So this afternoon, I believe in Jesus because there is great evidence that it's true. I believe in Jesus because I know it works and I've seen it in many lives. But I believe in Jesus because it's beautiful. No one else has died for me. No one else has paid for me. But Jesus has. And today we worship him because he's not dead. Three days later he rose again and he lives forever. And this afternoon, whether this is new to you or old to you, I ask you this afternoon, will you come and gaze at what John saw? The most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, many of us in this room... Many of us would want to say thank you and we're sorry. We're sorry that we would take an act like this, an act of such beauty, that we would take it so lightly, that we would be distracted by other trivial things, pretty things that are not real, rather than to be taken up with the beauty of this. And so, Father, we pray that you would captivate our minds that we would believe this is true and that you'd captivate our hearts and that we'd know this is true and that we would gaze on the beauty of Jesus. And just like Psalm 27 says, that one thing we would ask of you, one thing we will seek, that we would gaze on the beauty of our King Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.